Today uh, we are stepping out of the book of Acts and looking at the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, which we've just talked about in the book of Acts. And today we're going to focus our attention upon Christ's humiliation and exaltation, in particular the incarnation. And um, I think this is one of the most profound passages in all the Bible that speaks to the issue of who Jesus is and what his love looks like in his condescension to come and save his people from their sins. That's His name is Jesus. He will come and save his people from their sins. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 5 and conclude at verse 11. Hear now God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray this morning as we consider together this text. It is beyond words for us to truly grasp what is being said here. It is uh, beyond our imagination, beyond our ability to lay hold of. And so we pray this morning that as we take time... Uh, together to consider this that you would grant us much of the Spirit and that we might be by the power of the Holy Spirit today enabled to grasp what is being said here because it is amazing and we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord Amen you know as I spent all week immersing myself in this passage and uh, looking at it uh, in quite a bit of depth, and then uh, sitting down the other night, um, uh, scrolling through the very obvious choices to watch a Christmas movie. Uh, When you spend time in a passage like this and you look at what passes for a Christmas movie, it's kind of hard to get very excited. Uh, What you'll find in most so-called Christmas movies, like on Netflix or the other services, Our our movies always have a Christmas miracle or it's always about a family that's in a huge dysfunction and somehow in the season's moment, love returns and everything turns out okay except for the dystopian Christmas movies in which everything exacerbates and gets worse and it becomes a farce. And so watching that, after reading this passage all week, I have to tell you, it was a little nauseating and uh, a little challenging for me because this passage says so much that is so precious to all of us. And so 
Let's think about this passage together for just a few moments. There's a quotation in your bulletin of about what I'm about to say that uh, has to do with St. Augustine. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life, he responded as follows. First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. This is the theme that Paul is now pursuing, and his great concern at this point in the Philippian letter should we should stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel because we have seen that requires a genuine unity among Christian believers which according to Paul depends upon humility you cannot have true unity in the church without humility and it also requires the exaltation of the son of God now this particular passage is so chock full of so much it's, it's kind of like going to a cafeteria when I was a kid and trying to pick out what I want. Uh, but there's so much here, and we're going to take uh, time to look at it. But understand the context uh, in terms of which Paul gave this passage. There was division in the church at Philippi. How do I know? Because he's exhorting them toward unity. And he's giving them the grand example of the most humble act that ever occurred in the history of the world to encourage them to humble themselves and live together as one. And so there was obviously division in this church. We know that in the last chapter of this letter, he points out two women who apparently he encouraged to reconcile who were having trouble in the church. Now, with that said, I want to give you just a brief breakdown of what I think this passage is saying and is about, and then we'll unpack this breakdown together. So, this is the closest thing to Christology that the Apostle Paul has ever written. And what do I mean by Christology or Christology? Well, you put ology on the end of anything, it means the study of. Biology is the study of bios, which is what? Life. Philosophy. Uh, phileo in the Greek is love. Sophos in the Greek is wisdom. It is the study and love of wisdom. Christology. What is Christology? It is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The two natures. The one person. Uh, and how that's all understood within biblical Christianity. And so here we have probably the most Christological thing that Paul ever said. Uh, and also we see here why the scandal of the cross was so essential uh, and central to his understanding of everything about the Christian life. For in pouring himself out, that is Jesus, and humbling himself to death on the cross, Christ Jesus has revealed the character of God himself. The most revelatory moment in the history of the life of Christ is when he went to the cross, and there we see more about more than we will ever know. But essentially what we see here is the nature of God. What is God like? And so when we see Christ at the cross, humbling himself, pouring himself out, he revealed the very character of God himself. Here is the epitome of God-likeness. If you don't hear anything else I say, please hear the following statement. Here's the epitome of God-likeness. 
The pre-existent Christ was not a grasping, selfish being, but one whose love for others found its consummate expression in pouring himself out and taking on the role of a slave and humbling himself to the point of death on behalf of those he loved so very much. No wonder Paul cannot abide a triumphalism that he found at the church in Philippi where they said we would never suffer anymore if we were truly belonging to God. To God. It goes against everything that God is and that God is about. To be sure, there is a final and ultimate vindication for the one who goes the way of the cross, but for believers, vindication is in the future, not in the present. The already of salvation means that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, obeying the Lord and walking as He walked and experiencing suffering. So there are three things that I want you to see in the message today. Number one, as God, Christ emptied himself. As man, he humbled himself. And then number three, God the Father has exalted him as Lord of all, giving him a name. First, Christ emptied himself. Paul said we're to have a certain kind of mindset in living the Christian life and in understanding our place in the world. And so Paul begins the narrative of, about Christ with his pre-existence, indicating what his being God did not entail and what it did. And so the main thrust of the clause is simple enough. Christ being God was not for him a matter of selfish ambition or grasping or seizing. Rather, it expressed itself in the very opposite. Thus, in a single sentence, Paul goes from Christ being equal with God to his having taken the role of a slave defined in terms of the incarnation. So when you look at that little baby in the manger, understand that this is God stooping. Stooping beyond what any of us could ever imagine and grasp as we watch him stoop to come and save us. And so one of the profound things about this passage is that Paul proceeds from the narrative, that is, uh, or the imperative for us to have the same mind as Christ, and he begins to show us uh, the nature of what he has done. Uh, when he uses the phrase, and just look with me in the verse, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. What does Paul mean when he uses the word morphe, form, to describe Jesus? And so he's saying something about the transition from Christ being God to his becoming human. And he expresses this by way of metaphor. That is, the essential quality of the humanity is he took the form of a slave, but he was in the form of God. To say that means that when Paul uses the word form here, he is saying the characteristics and qualities that are essential to being God that which truly characterizes a given reality. And so Christ had come, and we know that he's preexistent. 
He comes, He's born, He lives, He dies, He's buried, He resurrects, He ascends, He's at the right hand of God. And so Paul is saying that He is in very nature of God. There's not a way to say it in the original language that is more um, definitive than to say that He is in the form of God. That is, outwardly we see the humanity of Christ. But that human nature is united to the divine nature that is in its essence and being God Himself. I don't know how we can understand better the pre-existence of Christ before the incarnation, His being in heaven as the second person of the Trinity in all of the glory and bliss and joy. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around and conceive of what the pre-existence of Christ must have been like. It is something we all hope to see as we enter heaven after we die. But He left that. He laid that aside. He did not grasp it. The contrast is deliberate here. Because who did grasp it? Adam. Adam, the first representative humanity, Adam, in the garden, grasped after godness. He grasped after a, a, a deity. Uh, Satan came to him and said, If you eat this fruit, then you'll be as God, knowing good and evil. And Adam took the fruit, thus grasping it. Here, the Son of God, who is essential in his nature deity, not a creature like Adam, doesn't grasp. He empties himself. Do you see that? He empties himself. That's a profound thing. Uh, as we look at this, Notice also the next verse where it says, He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it mean to grasp here? It's, it's a word actually for robbery. Um, and so he's emphasizing the concept of grasping or seizing something. Thus Christ did not consider equality with God to consist of grasping or being selfish. Rather, he rejected this popular view of kingly power by pouring himself out for others. And so, this then is what it means for Christ to be in the form of God. It means to be equal with God. Not in the sense that it's identical, but it points to the same reality. Paul is setting up the starkest possible contrast between Christ being in the form of God and emptying himself, something inherent to Christ's preexistence. But here's what I want to drive home to you. He did not use his deity to seize it to his own advantage. But he emptied himself. Another very controversial passage in Pauline literature. Because some people think that when Christ, is, the Greek word is kenosis, the kenotic theory is Christ emptied himself of certain attributes of being God. He was no longer omniscient. He was no longer omnipotent. He was no longer omnipresent. He's localized in the body. Therefore, he emptied himself of prerogatives and qualities of deity. That is dead wrong. He emptied himself. He poured himself out by becoming a servant, a slave, 
a man, a human being. He emptied himself of himself. And how did he do that? By becoming a servant. By becoming a slave. And so that mindset that Paul is calling us to is amazing. Um, Sinclair Ferguson in his work on this uh, points back to when Christ washed the servant's feet. Uh, he said that he rose up from the table where they were, he girded himself, tied himself with a cloth, got down and started washing the feet of his disciples, and when he was finished he got up and was seated. He said that is a parable of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And just as Christ stood from his seat, got down on his knees, washed the feet of his disciples, something a slave or a servant would do, and then rose and sat back down, he is giving them in parable exactly what Philippians 2 is talking about. He is saying, he is denying all rights that he has to be who he ha is and to save us without ever ceasing at any moment to become God. And so, that is precisely what is happening here. The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a calling. Thus, as in the not side of the clause, we are still dealing with the character of God that has been revealed in the mindset, the resulting activity of the Son of God. The concern is with divine selflessness. God is not an acquisitive being grasping and seizing, but self-giving for the sake of others. That is what love is. It is other-directed self-giving. Christ emptied himself. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't demand what was due him. He didn't seize and grasp his deity, all of which would have been legitimate for him to do. But what did he do? He emptied himself of himself to save people like us. He became the lowest of the low and entered into the scandal of the cross. To the cross, for the Romans, it was the most despicable and heinous death reserved for criminals. The cross, for the Jews, was uh, the signal and sign that someone was hung on a tree, thereby being accursed. Christ voluntarily, willingly, without ceasing to be who he had been from eternity, emptied himself of every right. And we're called... Get this, we are called to the same mindset. We are called to that paradigm. That is how we are to love one another. And I know how hard it is. We all like to talk about our rights, don't we? We all like to talk about, I have my rights. Uh, I often get humbled whether I want to or not. Most of the time I don't want to, but I find myself getting humbled and uh, I, it's just like 
everything in me rails against that and I want to defend myself and I want to claim my rights. But the nature of Christ emptying himself and the way it expressed itself in our human history by taking the form of a slave uh, means precisely what it says. His earthly existence took on the essential quality of what it means to be a slave. From Paul's perspective, this is how divine love reveals itself in its most characteristic and profuse uh, expression. So the emphasis in this passage doesn't fall so much on Jesus as Messiah as his fulfilling the role of the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant in Isaiah 43, but also in um, um, Isaiah 53, 52 through 53. It lies primarily on the servant nature of Christ's incarnation. The phrase, in the form of a slave, uh, comes for rhetorical reasons to sharpen the contrast within the form of God and sets out the true nature of the incarnation. It reflects the quality of his incarnation. Thus Christ came in the form of a slave, that is, by his coming, he in the likeness of human beings. And so, in becoming human, Christ never ceased to be divine. And so he uh, was sinless in every respect, yet he took upon himself the likeness of human beings. And in becoming human, he was not human only. He was God living out a truly human life, which uh, Paul emphasizes in this passage. Uh, just a couple of other quick things to sort of sum up where I am so far. I know I'm a little bit technical today, but it just when I, when I studied this, it melted my heart. It convicted my socks off, number one, for being so selfish and seizing and grasping and wanting my rights and pride uh, in spades in my heart. But it also melted my heart to see what my Savior, how he thinks of me, what he did for me. My name is written on his hands that he was willing to do this for me. It's just, I'll never get over that. And I think heaven will be seeing it more and more and more and more. Never have I been uh, uh, as aware as I have this week of the love of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus has shown his true nature. That, it, that is what it means for Christ to be equal with God, to pour himself out for the sake of others and to do so by taking the role of a slave. Hereby, he not only reveals the character of God, but from the perspective of the present context, he also reveals what it means for us to be created in God's image, to bear his likeness and to have his mindset. Now he takes up, in the next verses, the role of the slave for the sake of others. And we'll go through this pretty quickly. The two phrases that we see being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, the reality of his humanity is emphasized 
as well as the presence of his deity. But here is the very heart of Pauline theology, both of his understanding of God as such and his understanding of what God has done and is presently doing in our broken and fallen world. Here is where the one who, as equal with God, has most fully revealed the truth about God, that God is love and his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice, a cruel, shameful, humiliating death on a cross. Death is amazing here for the sake of the ones he loves, the divine weakness, as it were, death at the hands of his creatures and his enemies is the divine scandal. For the cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. Nobody in Philippi, uh, we must remind ourselves, used a cross as a symbol for their faith. There were no gold crosses embossed on Bibles or worn as pendants around the neck or lighted on the steeple of the local church. The cross was God's and thus their scandal. It's a scandal. That's why I'm glad we have it up on the wall behind me. It is the scandal of all scandals. The weakness of God. God's contradiction to human wisdom and power that one day... Uh, that the one they worshipped is Lord of all and has been crucified as a state criminal in the hands of one of Caesar's proconsuls, that the Almighty should appear in human dress and that he should do so in this way as Messiah who died by crucifixion. This is our God, the servant king, who calls us now to follow him to bring our lives as a daily offering, a worship to the servant king. But then point number three has to do with the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest possible place uh, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every time I hear someone curse by saying Christ or Jesus or Jesus Christ, my skin crawls. Why? Because they don't know what they're saying. They have no idea what they're saying. The very lips that curse the name of Christ are one day going to be on their knees confessing him as Lord and Christ to the glory of God. Every single creature will do this. And so it grieves my heart to hear it, and yet I also understand it. Paul moves from the description of the humbling of the Son of God, making himself nothing, taking the nature of a slave, becoming obedient to death, to a magnificent description of the exaltation of Christ. So, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion here. Paul goes on to speak about the whole creation bowing before Jesus as Lord. And it's usually argued that, in, that it is the name that Paul has in view. 
But it may come closer to the truth to suggest that Paul is thinking of the meaning of Jesus' name Savior combined with the title Lord. For lying behind these verses, we detect the shadow of Isaiah's prophecy. Listen as I read from Isaiah 45. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Before me, every knee will bow. Before me, by me, every tongue will swear. Some people have argued that Isaiah was Paul before Paul. He's the Paul of the Old Testament. Paul is saying that Jesus has been publicly exalted to the position which he had before his humiliation. In the flesh, through which he identified with us, his glory and majesty were normally hidden. Now, exalted at the right hand of the Father, his true identity is clear. His eternal majesty is revealed. God is the only Savior, but Jesus is that Savior. To the Lord alone, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is that Lord. Here we see Christ's deity as strongly as it could be said. Uh, Paul employs the Old Testament passage in which God, as speaker, gives a description of himself, which applies exclusively to himself. Paul now applies that description to Jesus. He, exalt, he calls Jesus Lord. The Greek word you know is kurios. It appears over 6,000 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul used called the Septuagint. In the vast majority of these references, the word translates the sacred Hebrew divine name that no one would say Yahweh. Say Kyrios to a Greek-speaking reader of the Old Testament, he would immediately think of the holy name of the covenant God, Yahweh. For Paul to say that Jesus Christ is Lord is not primarily to make a statement about his personal consecration, but about his Savior's divine identity. Paul says that the exaltation of Jesus to the heaven's highest place is to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Jesus brooks no rivals to his divine throne. Think of what happened to Adam and Eve when they thought they could be equal with God and rejoices in the divine glory of Christ. Why? Paul has already given us the answer. Our Lord was in very nature God. Equality with God is his eternal right. We could not ask for a clearer, richer statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. But there's another penetrating implication of this teaching. If the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place, he will find any lesser honor being accorded to his son as intolerable. Here then is one way we can recognize those whose hearts are really in tune with God. What do they make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? If we do not desire to see him honored, then we are at odds with the Father. The reality of our faith in His Son is very much in doubt. 
An interesting sidelight on this passage that Jesus Christ now occupies a, a position of divine honor and glory in heaven is given to us by the Apostle John in this wonderful word and symbol portrait in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 4 and 5, when he describes Christ at the center of the throne of God, crowned with glory and honor. That is what heaven will be like. There's so much in this chapter that we can sometimes ignore the presence of significant word with which it opens. Therefore, it implies that there is an integral connection between the humiliation of Jesus and his exaltation by his Father. Whenever we see the word therefore in Paul's letters, we should stop and work out the connection between what has preceded and what follows. What is here? The exaltation of Jesus Christ fulfills prophecy. We have noticed already that behind Philippians 2 lies in the shadow of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. That prophecy begins with the promise, "See my servant, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted." Again, Psalm 2 makes the same claim. But the exaltation is also the right of the Son because He Himself is God. He is God. He is one with the Father in everything except the properties which distinguish Him as Son. His exaltation is a logical consequence of His humiliation. He is the dear Son of His Father. His Father loves Him. His Father watched Him go to the cross. His Father made Him to be sin for us. His Father heard Him cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Father has heard His earlier prayer, Father, glorify Your Son. Glorify me in Your presence with the glory I had with You before the world began. The love of his Father for him made his exaltation an inevitable consequence of his humiliation. And this is what the Father wants for his Son. One day that will be clear when willingly or unwillingly every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, has Jesus' humiliation for our sakes led us to this logical conclusion that on our knee we should bow to him and even do it here and now? Paul had in mind a particular application of this teaching for the church at Philippi. Has all that Christ has done become and become made any significant impact on their lives? Has it humbled them has it humbled you and so when you think about the incarnation this is Paul's probably most explicit interaction with the concept of the son of God becoming the baby at Bethlehem and living the life for us you know, I, I could even go further, and I may do a little bit of this on Christmas Eve, about what it meant for Jesus to stand in our place through the whole of his life, what his servanthood looked like as he lived his life. But let me tell you that the greatest way you can celebrate 
the coming holidays is to number one come to the Christmas Eve service if you can we know that some of you have excuses that God would permit for not being here the rest of you I don't know what to say to you but after hearing this message surely you'll want to come and adore the one uh, we are streaming it right Greg we are streaming it the Christmas Eve service at five o'clock on Thursday but never let go of this truth that these precious words which have been such a bone of contention in Pauline theology it's just the devil stirring up the smoke screen is just the devil counterfeiting everything that God has is real because when you truly see what Philippians 2 says you could not possibly be more loved than you are and that makes me want to follow and obey Jesus with all of my heart let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you <clears throat> For this wonderful passage we know we only scratch the surface of what's there but we pray that you would use this word to work in us a genuine humility that lets go of our rights and causes us to move out of ourselves in other directed self-giving love we know that in this world we will have tribulation we know that we will walk the path of suffering just as our Lord and Savior Jesus did but we thank you that one day we will share in the glory of even being in his presence witnessing his exaltation forever and ever now Lord as we continue to worship you be pleased to drive home this word to our heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.